Okay, um, well, thanks for coming. My name's Jonathan Wood. Uh, and this, since this is a Christmas science lecture, I thought I'd begin with a photograph taken a Christmas, well, now over 40 years ago, in 1968. It was taken by the crew of Apollo 8 as they were in orbit around the moon. And it's this one. Photo taken on Christmas 1968, and it shows the Earth rising up from the cold, dark surface of the moon. An Earth bathed in sunlight, our own blue-green world, illuminated, full, full of hope and human possibility. Seven months after this photograph was taken, uh, Neil Armstrong would take those first steps on the moon itself. And, and so I think the light here shines out, it illuminates our own world, our place in the universe. It speaks of that hope, and I think it's, it really encapsulates a lot of what we think of about light, light that removes the dark and the mysterious. It's a source of, of beauty and warmth. It's, it's even a source of our own life and creation on Earth. That is, that does tend to be how we experience light, as a wonder, as a marvel in itself, but also something that reveals our world. Um, we can take joy, perhaps, in the color and the beauty that that brings. Uh, light and, and color, in particular, of course, informs our art. Um, many famous examples. But not only art, but you can think about the language we use. And all the words we use describe light. Light brightens, it illuminates, it ignites, it fires, it flashes, it flames. Light can, light can dawn, it can beam, it can sparkle, glitter, scintillate, Light is luminous, it radiates and it shines. Art, language, what about architecture? The, uh, the clothes and tiles that we might use, light and shade in, in the buildings that we build. And of, and of course in our own lives we, we use light to, to maybe celebrate, to, to enjoy life. Um, maybe to color our own appearance, our dress, to send out messages about who we are and where we belong and perhaps who we follow. What about light in science? Well, the, the scientific inquiry into light goes back centuries, even, even millennia. But often the way we learn about light in, in schools or in universities, I think leaves something a little bit, well, lacking. And I think this slide illustrates that a bit. Here are many of the people who've contributed most to our understanding of light throughout the ages. And well, they're ancient. They're distant history. They're, they're all men. Uh, they all have, well, lots of facial hair or ridiculous wigs. Uh, they look tired. They're in black and white, for goodness sake. And often the lessons that we have about light, the diagrams that we learn from, well, well, they're also tired, dry, and in black and white. Where's the color? Where's the, the illumination? So today, I'm going to try and, and put some of that wonder and fascination back. We're going to go on a trip and see what light can reveal, a tour, if you like, of how light is used in cutting-edge science and technology. We really are 
going to trip the light fantastic. And what better place to begin than perhaps a question we all had when we were young. Why, oh why, is the sky blue? Now, if you're anything like, uh, like me, or, or perhaps most of us in this room, you'd have asked our um, mums and dads, our, our families, why is the sky blue? Does anyone remember the answer they got back? Because it is. Thank you very much. Because it is. And, and stop doing that. And, and don't hit your brother or sister. And like that. So that's how it goes. Well, today, we're going to try and do a bit better and answer the question, why is the sky blue? Uh, so this is a, a photograph of a famous street in Bath. I don't know how many of you know Bath. Uh, it's called the Crescent. And the photo has this huge expanse of, a, of an early spring blue sky behind it. But all our light, of course, on Earth comes, comes from the sun. The sun isn't in this picture. If you look at all the, all the reflection from the windows and the crescent, it's maybe, maybe over our right shoulders as we look at this photograph. So why is there any light coming from the sky in this direction at all? Why is it blue? and not as black as the lamppost in the foreground? Why isn't it black and we're not seeing stars glittering out here? So the question we need to answer is not only why is the sky blue, but why is it blue in every direction we look at it? Well, I've got a demonstration that I hope will show uh, why the sky is blue and answer all those questions. So if we take the lights down, what we need is we need uh, our sun, first of all. Here's our sun with um, giving out lots and lots of, of white light. We need our sky, and that's our fish tank full of water here. So that's our sky. And we need us, us here on Earth. This is what we're going to see looking through the sky at the sun. Well, not directly at the sun. We want to keep our eyesight. So here we are. So we're seeing the sun as white at the moment, but there's something missing from this demonstration at the moment. Where we are on Earth, we have an atmosphere. We, we breathe uh, the air around us, an air full of, of atoms and molecules, uh, almost entirely oxygen and nitrogen. So we're going to have to add that into the mix. And all I've got here is just a little drop of milk, which we're going to add in. Hopefully that's not too much. And as we mix that, as we distribute our atmosphere, all the oxygen and nitrogen in the air. I hope you've seen a change. Here's where we look. Here's us on the earth, looking out at the sun. And we're suddenly seeing an orange-red sun. And if you have a bit of the eye of belief, we're looking at our sky... It's cloudy, thanks very much. But maybe, maybe there's a bluey-gray tinge to it with a bit of belief. And we can see that color in every direction we look at it, whether we're on this side of the hall or on this side. It's that gray-blue color. What's happening here? What happens is we know that white light, if we, if we use a prism perhaps in our, our school uh, lessons or we just look at the rainbow, um, we know that white light's made up of all the colors of the rainbow. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and violet, all, all the spectrum. And the crucial thing is, is that when white light from the sun hits our atmosphere, 
all that light is scattered from the atoms and molecules in our atmosphere. But each color of the light is scattered to different amounts. So red and yellow are scattered very little indeed. And they pretty much go straight through our atmosphere. And so we see the circle of the sun as largely red, orangey, yellow. But blue light at the other end of the spectrum is scattered much, much more. So blue light is scattered out from the sun's rays and is scattered out in every direction. So every direction we look at the sky, we can see blue light being scattered back towards us. So it's blue light scattered from our atmosphere that we see as the sky. It's our atmosphere that makes the sky blue. So that's showed us a lot about why we see all the different colors. It's because all the different colors in the rainbow can act differently. Um, so here's, here's a picture of lots of pigments, pigments used to make paints or colorings or dyes, uh, bright, bright colors. And so when um, they give off those colors by interacting with the different colors of light differently. So if you had a red, pig, red pigment, uh, all the white light landing on that pigment, the green and blue light in the spectrum is all absorbed, and it's only red light that's reflected or re radiated out. They work kind of by subtracting color. So a red pigment subtracts green and blue and just leaves red. But seeing isn't always believing, because it's not only about the physics of light that determines what we see. It's also how our eyes detect that light and how our brains perceive that light. So I'm grateful to uh, a young science presenter called Steve Mould who introduced me to this idea. Um, anyone know what color this is? Pinky, purple, mauve, purple. <laughs> green. Thank you very much. There's always one. This color is normally given the name magenta. Now I have a problem with magenta. And it's not just appearing on stage with it with my hard-as-nailed Scottish persona. Um, I have a problem with magenta, um, and I'm going to try and explain why. First of all, here's our spectrum of all the colors from red on the left through to blue on the right. Where on earth is magenta? It can't be found there. So um, we might know a bit about mixing colors of light. Uh, here, here are the three main colors of light we might like to think about, red, green, and blue. I've got no problem with yellow. Yellow is a mixture of red and green light, and a sort of turquoisey color, or, or cyan, it's often called, a mixture of green and blue. So why on earth would I have a problem with the mixture of red and blue light that is magenta? I'm going to try and explain why. So, so here's our spectrum again, and our eyes uh, light passes through the pupil in our eyes, it's focused by the lens, it lands on the retina at the back of our eye. And it's that retina that is packed, absolutely packed full of lots of cells that detect the light we see. And some of those cells sense color. We have ones that detect red light, ones that detect green, and ones that detect blue. So they'll, they'll sort of detect those colors in those parts of the spectrum. So if, for example, we have some, some of the sort of yellowy colors from the spectrum hitting uh, the retina at the back of our eye. It's going to be the red and the green cells that will go, well, it's a bit red, 
it's a bit green, and the brain will go, well, a bit red, a bit green. Well, I think that's somewhere in the middle. I think we're seeing yellow light here. Uh, so the brain corrects this and sort of says, I, I'm seeing yellow. The difference is when we see red and green light separately, but together, again, the cells in our retina are going to go, well, I'm seeing red and I'm seeing green. I'm seeing them both at the same time together and the brain goes, I've learned what that is. That's yellow. And so red and green mixed together, even though they're separate colors, the brain will go, well, I'm seeing yellow there. And it's very much at the other end, very much the same at the other end of the spectrum. So if we're seeing those turquoisey cyan colors, uh, they're hitting our eyes. It's going to be the green cells in the retina going, well, I'm seeing something that's a bit green. And the blue cells are going, well, it's also a bit blue. And the brain thinks, ah, I think I know what to do here as well. I think the color must be somewhere in the middle. I'm, I'm seeing cyan. And again, the same is going to happen if we see green and blue light. Uh, the green cells in our eye going, yeah, seeing green here. Blue cells going, blue again. The brain goes, again, I've learned what this is. This is science. So mixing green and blue gets those colors in the middle. The problem comes then, of course, is what happens when red and blue light separately land in the cells in our retina. Um, brain goes, bit of red here, bit of blue here. It's probably going to be in the middle again. It's probably going to be green. And our eyes going, hey, boss, no green here. No green. And brain goes, I don't like that very much. I'm seeing red and I'm seeing blue, but I'm definitely not seeing green. Um, must, be, must be not green. It must be this thing called magenta. The brain essentially comes up with a color to explain why it's seeing everything but not green. We're seeing all the colors minus green. Uh, and the brain goes, yeah, that's, that's magenta. Thank you very much. So my problem with magenta is it's nowhere on the spectrum because well, because it's a pigment of our imagination. I think you did very well not to laugh at that pun. I think I respect you all the more. Um, so that's a, that's a bit about color and about, about the way our eyes and our brains are both important in the colors that we see. But of course, it's, it's really the eye that's critical for all that we see. Uh, and unfortunately, those cells we were talking about packed so tightly in our retinas that detect all the light uh, around us. There are some diseases where those cells begin to die and decay and die off. And the people with those conditions do gradually become more and more blind. Um, sometimes that just happens with age. Uh, perhaps these cells uh, somehow get old uh, a bit more quickly die off and, and we go gradually blind in our old age, which is bad enough. But there are also inherited conditions uh, down to our genetics, which leads these cells to die off at a much uh, younger age. You can start in teens uh, and, and go on through our 20s and 30s. And so unfortunately, that person becomes gradually blind and, and their quality of... Um, but that's nothing to do with anything that's gone wrong with the anatomy of the eye. The pupils are still there, the lenses, everything's working. And it's nothing to do with the problem in the nerves, the optic nerve that takes those, uh, the signals where light has been detected on the retina back to the brain. That still functions absolutely perfectly. All that's been lost are these cells in the eye that detect light and, and turn them into uh, signals that go down our nerves to our brain. 
So that's led to the idea of coming up with an implant, an artificial replacement for our retinas, a retinal implant that would have an electronic chip in it, a chip that would detect all the light landing on our retinas, would change it into an electric signal that would go down our nerves to the brain and we'd see pretty much as normal. It's difficult electronic engineering, it's difficult surgery as well to implant these into the eye, but actually we're getting many, many steps along the path to being able to restore people's sight. It could bring hope to hundreds of thousands of people around the world. Um, so here's a video from some researchers in Glasgow who've been looking at this. Here's their demonstration of how it would work. So here's our eye. Light's going to go in. We're going to follow the path of light entering our eyes. We're going to go travel the path of eye through the pupil, being focused by the lens of the eye, until we reach the retina at the very back of our eye. And that's where we're going to put our electronic implant, our light-sensitive electronic chip that's going to take all, um, replace those cells that have died, send electronic signals to the brain. And here's their first attempt. Uh, this is the electronic chip. You can see maybe there are lots of little circles there. They're all the electronic light detectors. And those golden stripes are the electrodes taking the, the electric signals away, uh, which will go down the optic nerve to the brain. Uh, now, there are about 60 of those little spots there, 60 light detectors. They act like pixels. So here you would get an image of just 60 pixels. Now, if you think of just even just the cameras in our, in our phones, they what have, I don't know, a million, two million, eight million pixels. So an image of just 60 pixels is not, not going to be great, but it's at least a start. So they went on from there, these researchers in Glasgow, and built, well, a much better electronic chip. Uh, loads and loads of light detectors here, uh, a few thousand. And that would give a much better quality image. A few thousand pixels, not great, but people have done sort of experiments and reckon if you had a thousand pixels, you would at least be able to navigate your way around a room, avoiding most of the big obstacles. So a few thousand pixels, better than that. It's some kind of vision, at least. But there is a company in Germany that's maybe a step further on. They're actually beginning to carry out operations to implant electronic chips in people's eyes. Um, and here's a photograph through someone's eye. So this is a photograph showing the retina itself. And that uh, sparkly golden holy grail in the top corner is the electronic chip actually in someone's eye. This is what it looks like. So um, the electronic chip is right at the end of this person's middle finger. It's absolutely tiny. Those cables you see running back are just the, the power cables that take power to the implant. You'd have a battery perhaps sat behind your ear so you could replace it when it ran out. Um, and that's what the mechanics of it, which may sound a bit unpleasant, but this is the difference it makes. Here is someone who's lost their sight. They had sight, but they've lost it. These cells have died off. He's, been, he's one of three people who's been planted with this electronic chip in Germany. And he's had the best results by far. Um, it's just very early stages, but this is what he's able to do. Okay. What I feel like seeing, I see a table right here. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> plate. plate. Yeah. And then there's a 
knife here. Yeah. And uh, this one looks different on the right, so I would say it's a spoon. Mm -hmm. And then there's a mug here. What he's doing, this is very much a laboratory setting. And he's got these objects laid out in front of him, which he hasn't seen before. And he's able to see where they are, they are. But not only that, he's able to name what they are. He says, well, that's, that's a plate. And I'm seeing something, well, it's kind of straight. I think that's a knife and a spoon and a mug. This is someone, until he had this implant, implant couldn't see. Now, it's not perfect vision by any means. And this is in a laboratory. These are white objects on a dark background under very uniform lighting. And he's wearing some silly glasses that I have no idea what they're doing. But he's, he's been given some vision back. Um, and the next video, I think, is even more impressive. Under the left, you know, yeah. now I lost it because I had it in the... Uh, oh, here we go. It's right. Yeah. So where I see it, it's mm -hmm. right here. So now I'm just so like don't touch. checking all of it. Don't touch. Well, not yet. Okay. So, yeah, it's round. Yeah. 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 And then the one on the right, it looks like it's, it's longer. And it's curving like a little bit like this way. Yes. So it's okay. What, it must what be a banana. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I what it looks like. <laughs> what do you think is the left? I think you know it's round. It's just you know apple. <laughs> Here he's presented with two objects. Now he couldn't tell from where they were placed. You know, we're used to dinner sets in front of us and what they might be. He had no idea here. He's actually seeing the apple in a slightly different position from where it is on the table. But he can say, oh, it's something round, something round, an object, spherical object here. And then he looks at the other one. And from its shape, he says, that's banana. Now, this was the very, one of the very first three people to be given this implant, uh, very early stage stages yet. Um, he then had to um, have the implant removed. But the next step is going to be a, a proper clinical trial here in Oxford. Oxford University researchers are going to take the same implants from the same company. They're going to give them to maybe a dozen people or so uh, and see how they work. Not so much at this stage for seeing if they can get lots of vision back, but just seeing if people can, if there's any reactions to having these implants in long, long term. But I think any, any small disadvantages there are are going to be vastly outweighed to the uh, improvements in the quality of life of people receiving these implants. So in the that, those trials will start early in the new year. And so in the next months and years, we might begin to hear a bit more about this and the ability to maybe restore some kind of sight to these people who were previously blind. Amazingly positive story with light. So that's bringing back a bit of sight to those who didn't have it before, uh, being able to see things. What about not being able to see things? What about um, invisibility, a staple of fiction? The invisible man, or we could think of uh, the cloaking devices of Klings and Star Trek, Harry Potter, obviously. Uh, I think I prefer invisible woman. <laughs> invisible woman. Part of the Fantastic Four, a.k.a. Susan Storm, of course. Now, she could bend time and space around her to make herself invisible. If we were going to want to do that ourselves, perhaps make um, our, a hand invisible, say, and give comic book artists a bit of a problem, if we were going to make our hand invisible, we'd face two problems. Uh, we can see my hand, 
because all the light in this room, some of it's being reflected off back from my hand, and that light we're seeing with our eyes. So we can see that reflected light. We can also see, but we might be able to see perhaps where the light would have gone if my hand wasn't there, the shadow behind where the light would have gone. So if we're gonna make my hand invisible, we're gonna have to take all that light coming from any direction back to hit my hand. We're gonna have to bend it round the outside of my hand and merge that light back together on the other side as if that light had never been disturbed. No reflection, no shadows, no distortion that would give away to anyone looking that my hand was there. We need a cloak around my hand that just bent the light around the outside. Um, might be a bit like this. Uh, this is a, a cartoon trying to show what I mean. So if we were gonna make anything inside that green circle invisible, we'd have to take all the light, all the light rays coming towards that, whatever was inside that green circle. We'd have to have a sort of uh, a ring around it that would bend the light around the outside and merge it at the bottom as if the light had never been disturbed. There'd be nothing to give the game away. We wouldn't be able to see anything inside that green circle. Now, how on earth are we going to bend light? Light travels in straight lines. Light travels in rays. Well, we may not be able to bend light, but we can certainly nudge it into a different path. Uh, this is something that we might be familiar with um, just in daily life. This is a, a glass of water. We've got a straw in it. And if you look at the surface of the water, the straw appears to be broken. The straw appears to be in an entirely different place under the surface of the water and on top. And that's because light, when it enters the water, gets shifted and travels on a different path. So beneath the water, where the straw was, the light coming from there has been shifted onto a different path. It's been refracted, this nudging light onto a different path. And the angle through which light has been shifted onto a different path is called a refractive index. Now, here in this picture, the glass, water, and the air all have different refractive indexes or indices. Uh, and so light gets shifted onto a slightly different path uh, whenever it travels from one to the other. Now, every natural material has a refractive index. It's a property of the material. It's constant. It just is. It's a property of the material. But just imagine for a moment we had maybe a different type of material where we could dial in the refractive index, any refractive index that we wanted, so that light, when it entered this material, would experience one refractive index, and it would get shifted onto a new path. Go over here. It get shifted, uh, it would experience another refractive index, a different refractive index. It would get shifted onto a new path. Over here, again, another refractive index and another new path over here. And if you look back at the way I've come, my path I've come is actually curved. We've bent light by controlling refractive index. Now, we can't do that with natural materials, but we can create artificial structures that do exactly that. And so back in 2006, scientists in the States at Duke University used that ability to create the first ever invisibility cloak. Uh, and I've got a picture of it. This is it here. And you're right, perhaps, not to gasp in amazement. Because if this is the first invisibility cloak ever made, ever made by man, I can see that. It, 
it's a, it's a whole series of, of discs of concentric circles of plastic with little golden uh, copper coils precisely patterned and spaced on that. The thing is, this doesn't work for visible light that you and me see. This works for microwaves. This makes things in the center of that disc invisible to microwaves. You could put a pot noodle in the center there, put it in a microwave oven, and it would never get hot. Um, so remarkable stuff, but not quite an invisibility clock. Um, now, you could shrink down these structures. It'd be immense technological challenge. It'd be right on the edge of what any scientist could do. But there's nothing physically limiting us do that, doing that. Um, However, there is one more point, one more limitation about this structure. It only works for one frequency of microwaves. Um, and frequency in terms of microwaves, microwaves is a type of light, just like visible light we see. Frequency in terms of microwaves is the same as color with the light that we see. So you could create, it'd be difficult, but you could create an invisibility cloak that worked for one color, but not for any others. Um, so that's not actually going to be that useful. Here's invis Invisible Woman again. Uh, there she is on the left. And here she is on the right. And we photoshopped her. So she's got an invisibility cloak that's removing just some of the parts of the blue spectrum. Um, she's invisible in some parts of blue light. But in every other color, we can still see her. I can still see her sultry pout there staring out at us. Um, now, there's no way, as far as we can see, of overcoming that limitation of things only working for one color. We might be able to broaden it out a bit, uh, but no one's come up with a way of making it work for all colors. So I think we're going to be a bit stuck there, no matter how clever we are. But there's lots of great new physics and new, new maths approaches, actually, in all this work. So people will begin to look for applications. Uh, military already is looking at making uh, uh, ships and, and uh, planes invisible to radar, but um, we'll have to see how well that works, or, or perhaps not see how well that works uh, in the next few years. So that's a type of invisibility, an impressive new science and technology, but, there but it does have its limitations. There is, however, one special case where I can make things invisible, and I'm going to try and show you. Uh, we're going to switch to our camera showing us what's on this table. Um, I'm going to put a nice black background so we can really see what's going on. All I've got here are, are two scientific beakers, or they would be if I still worked in a scientific laboratory. These are, these are naked cafe tiers, uh, but they are just Pyrex, Pyrex beakers. Uh, nothing up my, my sleeves. Um, these are absolutely normal beakers. We put them down where we can see them. What I'm going to do is I'm going to fill the small beaker first um, with something perhaps a little bit unexpected. This is baby oil. Here we go. Just filling up that small beaker with baby oil. And then I'm going to put the small beaker inside the large beaker carefully. It'll, be, it'll become pretty apparent why I'm doing this in a minute. So you can see there, small beaker inside the large beaker, small beaker full of baby oil. I'm then going to run the oil in between the two beakers to fill up the space in between. And as the oil rises up in the big beaker, I want to take you to take a careful look at what happens to the small beaker. 
it's disappeared. Thank you very much. The small beaker has vanished. It's not floating on top. I think you can see that. The small beaker has vanished inside. How on earth does this work? We know it's there. You can see it there on the table. On the screen, it's vanished. Just quickly to explain. Pyrex and baby oil have exactly the same refractive index, that weird concept I was trying to tell you about. So light, once it enters the Pyrex, it will travel in a perfect straight line through the oil, through the next Pyrex beaker, through the oil again, and out the other side. There is nothing to disturb it from its path. It travels in a straight line. There's no reflection, no shadow, no refraction, no distortion that would allow you to see that small beaker inside. Now then, light, you probably all know, is, um, is a type of energy. Uh, we can tell that because when we wear a dark t-shirt on a hot day, and that absorbs all the light, the black absorbs all the light, we get hot. Uh, that light energy turns to heat. And of course, that's what solar cells make use of. They take the light energy and turn it into electricity, into electrical energy. But I'm not particularly going to talk about light as energy. I'm going to talk about light pressure, something perhaps we're not aware of. Light, when it reflects from a surface, imparts a pressure on that surface. It's a tiny, tiny pressure. So it'd be negligible. We, uh, there's no point trying to measure it on something as big as those solar cells. But we might be able to make use of it when we get to a very, very tiny microscopic scale. And this rather complicated scientific diagram tries to explain a bit how you might be able to use light pressure. Here we have a glass bead. It's a tiny glass bead. It's microscopic. We might want to look at it under a microscope. Uh, and that's what we're doing here. We're using that lens. is a microscope lens that you might use to look through it um, at the bead. And we're focusing laser light through the lens. And the bead will want to stay in the focal point of the laser light. It's very much like um, this ping pong ball. Stay with me on this. And this hair dryer. The ping pong ball will want to stay, because of the way the air flows around the outside of the ping pong ball, there are forces keeping that ping pong ball right in the center of that airflow. And any fluctuations in that airflow, the forces will act to keep that ping pong ball where it is. Now you can use this. You can use this to control where the ping pong ball is. You can say, well, I'll take the ping pong ball over here, thank you very much. Or maybe I'll take it over here. So we can control, we can use the airflow to control where that ping pong ball goes. It's exactly the same with the beads in the focus point of the laser light. We now grabbed hold of that bead, and we can take it wherever we want. That means we've gained this kind of microscopic control over things that are so very small. We split laser light up into many different focus beams and create many different traps to trap all, uh, any number of tiny glass beads. And we can manipulate those traps individually to move those beads where we want, which allows you to do kind of cool things like this. If you've ever been to a Scottish Cayley, you might recognize this as Strip the Willow. What we have is four couples 
the men on the right, uh, the ladies on the left, um, and the lead couple starts the dance. The lead couple's down here at the bottom of the set, and I'll try and, uh, and call out uh, Strip the Willow. So imagine your Scottish music going here. So the lead man and woman, they spin. Uh, the man spins, the next woman in the set goes back to his partner and spins, spins the final woman, they spin each other, and then the, the lady goes up to the other side. So they spin again, and then they both go down the lines, spinning each other in turn, and then all the other couples in the set until they get to the bottom, and everyone moves up and starts again. I think, given my heritage, you might as well see that. Again. So remember, we're looking at this under a microscope. These are maybe a micrometer in size, a thousandth of a millimeter. And they're dancing for us. This is all just using light. You can tell this was all done in a Scottish university. But maybe you think, oh, that's, a bit, that's a bit naff. That's all a bit Jane Austen ballrooms, uh, heaving corsets and stamping feet. Let's try and bring it a bit more up to date. This is for all you b-boys and b-girls. So nice. Uh, so that's neat and pretty, pretty impressive. Um, but this, this can also be useful, this ability. We can use these microscopic beads as a tool to manipulate and control other things at that microscopic scale. We can use them to connect to individual molecules and pull on them and see what they do. So here's an experiment that was done in Stanford University in California. We've got two of these glass beads again. They're trapped in their laser light. And on the one on the right-hand side, we've attached a DNA molecule. There it is, stretching out towards the left. And on the left-hand bead over here, we've attached the machinery in the cell, in a cells of all our bodies, that attaches itself to DNA and tracks along the DNA, reading out the DNA sequence. So what's going to happen here is the bead on the left is going to get pulled along by this machinery as it reads out the DNA sequence, the instructions to life itself. And this is their video. So again, we should see the bead on the left gradually, maybe a bit jerkily, moving along towards the bead on the right. I'll try and show that again. There it goes. So that's the whole process 
crucial to life that's going on in all our cells of reading out instructions of DNA. And we've gained a hold on it. We can work out how it does it, how it likes to do it, the forces acting on it, the very physics of that process. As well as getting the beads to do breakdance. But what is light? How does it travel? Well, perhaps the best and perhaps easiest way to think about light is as a wave, a set of ripples with peaks and troughs, much like uh, ripples on the surface of water like this. Um, and I think, I think it's probably time to get you involved. You've uh, sat there listening to me witter on. Um, let's work out a bit about waves. Let's, uh, let's go for a type of waves you'll very much understand, I have no doubt. Let's go for some Mexican waves. So I, I want you all to take part. I want to hear lots of clattering of seats. We're going to start, first of all, at this side. A count of three. I want to see you like this, and we're going to go this way, okay? So, ready. For all those that can. Okay. Ready? Three, two, one. Not bad. I reckon more people can take part, though. Okay, let's go back this way. This side, count of three. Three, two, one. Excellent. One last go before you all sit down properly. What I want this time is two waves. Two Mexican waves, one going that way and one starting there and going this way. So again, counting down from three. Three, two, one. Not bad. Not bad. Okay. So what happened? What happened with that last one? What happened with that last one with two waves? They were going to crash in the middle. What did you people think in the middle as you were hit from both sides? You were <laughs> scared. <laughs> not a bad, not a bad reaction, yeah. Um, so you were already going up and then the other wave hit at the same time. Maybe you'd try and go, I don't know, twice as high, jump up in the air, whatever. You were adding two waves together. And then you, just this side, you were sitting down as the next wave came from that side. So you were trying to sit down and go up again as well. What did you do? Get caught, caught a bit in the middle, a bit up, down. Maybe I'll stay where I, am, where I am. The peaks and the troughs, they cancelled out. You put them both together and you were somewhere stuck in the middle, not doing anything. And... When two different waves come together, you do get this complicated pattern. You have to add up all these peaks and troughs, and it depends where you are, whether you're here or here, as to what you do. So here are, are two waves, perhaps these are two pebbles just dropped in some water, and the circular waves are radiating out. And where they hit each other, you suddenly get this complicated pattern where the peaks and troughs add and cancel out. Uh, and it's called an interference pattern. Um, this computer animation perhaps explains it a bit better. You've got these, these waves radiating out in circles from where the stones were dropped in the water. And right in the middle here, down this way, all those peaks and troughs come together. They add up. So you get waves twice the height. Both waves come together and add nicely. But just to the side, peaks are meeting troughs 
from the other way. Uh, a peak meets a trough. In between, they cancel out. You get nothing. So you just get this line where nothing happens. It's just a dull, light blue color. So where these two waves add and cancel out leads to this pattern that's totally dependent on your position in it. It doesn't just happen with two waves. Just occasionally, it happens with a single wave. Here we have a wave coming in from the left, a whole series of waves like this, and they're meeting an obstacle. The obstacle's got a small hole in the center. And those waves come through, but they, they start, um, the little waves start, uh, I was about to say, interfering with themselves. <laughs> but they, they break, and all the peaks and troughs uh, begin to add and cancel out. So yes, you get a bright spot in the middle. If you take a picture from this end, depending on where you are, you get a bright spot in the middle, but then there are a whole series of bands, some where the waves add up together and somewhere they cancel out. This is called diffraction. And taking a picture at this end here, that's called a diffraction pattern. And we can use this. This is all just maths. This is all just addition and subtraction of waves, depending on where you are. So you can go from this diffraction pattern, use maths backwards, and work out what this obstacle must have been here. Now this obstacle, you can probably see, is about the same size as the distance between the waves on the left. And that's pretty crucial. Um, because we can use waves of different sizes or different uh, separations to probe the structure, what, what those obstacles are, uh, when those obstacles are a similar size. So X-rays. X-rays are a type of light. Um, we can't see them, of course. But they have a tiny, tiny distance between waves, a tiny wavelength. So we use X-rays to probe the structure of atoms and molecules. And this is an X-ray diffraction pattern. It's quite a famous one. It was taken in central London, just off the Strand, in the early 1950s. It was taken by uh, a woman named Rosalind Franklin. She was doing lots of lots of careful, painstaking work, hidden away in her lab laboratory, hour after hour. And eventually, she took this X-ray diffraction pattern. Unfortunately, her boss showed it to two blokes in Cambridge. Uh, Anyone know who these two blokes in Cambridge were? The, these are Crick and Watson. Uh, it's the 50s, so they're, in, I think, probably in the 50s. This is what confident young debonair men looked like, sort of knitting pattern posies. Um, and the model in between them is what they worked out from that X-ray diffraction pattern. It's a model of the structure of DNA, because they've done the maths. They knew that a diffraction pattern with an X meant whatever it was producing that pattern had a helix in it, had a kind of helter-skelter spiral. And more, because of the symmetry of this X, they knew that whatever it was was a double helix. It had helixes go one helix going up, one helix going down. And the banding in the X, the distance between those bands, meant they could work out how tightly that helix was wound and the uh, distance between the steps in the ladder. So they put together, just from that diffraction pattern, the structure of DNA. They knew it was a double helix. They knew the distance between the steps in the DNA ladder, and they knew how tightly it was wound. They could work out the structure of DNA. Their work from that diffraction pattern of light
gave birth to the modern study of genetics and biology that changed 20th century biology and may change medicine in the 21st century, all down to the study and use of light. Now, the use of X-rays to probe structure of materials at uh, atomic and molecular scale still goes on now. It's still um, very much cutting edge. And I don't know, I imagine many of you are local. If you're driving down the A34 between Dicket and Newbury, you might see this giant silver alien spacecraft that seems to have landed in the, in the green countryside. Um, it opened in 2007. It cost 360 million pounds. It's the size of five football pitches. And actually, despite that expense, I think this is something the UK can be very proud of indeed, actually. We Brits, we tend to talk ourselves down. We've, we've lost our empire. Our football teams are pretty poor. And if you're worrying about the English football team, you should look, take a look at the Scottish one. But actually, this is something we've done very well indeed. This is a triumph of civil engineering. And it's one of the world's best places to do science. In this circle, in this ring, electrons are whizzing around the outside of that ring at very close to the speed of light, just a few percent off the speed of light. And as they are accelerated around that ring, they give off x-rays, incredibly bright x-rays. And those x-rays can uh, be used to do diffraction experiments to create diffraction patterns. Um, and here's, here's a video that Diamond have produced themselves. Um, I hope I, in this case I have taken the sound off because there's a really annoying American voice explaining what happens. And ignore all the text. What you get is a, a pulse of X-ray light. It's focused down, it's bent, and its frequency is changed. It's all manipulated until you get to the very end. It goes through and it hits whatever the material is you want to uh, investigate, in this case, crystal, it diffracts from the structure of that crystal, and you get a picture at the other end, a diffraction pattern. And all sorts of scientists are using the diamond uh, facility to do all sorts of, of studies. Uh, people are looking at uh, creating better drugs to combat flu. Um, Tamiflu was uh, designed pretty much in this way. If any of you took Tamiflu during last year's swine flu outbreak, using x-rays like this to improve magnetic materials to make your computer hard drive much, much better, even to study the structure of yogurt. Uh, when I grew up, yogurts tended to be very runny, thin things. Now we very much want them to be creamy, solid, uh, great yogurts with great mouthfeel, same ingredients, entirely different processing, and a lot of the study into doing that better can happen at places like this. I'm going to finish with one uh, last example. Um, this is uh, a historical document. It's actually from the National Archive in Scotland. Um, it's a great piece of our heritage, really important historical document. It's made on parchment. Now, parchment is it's just animal skins that are stretched out, uh, dried appropriately, and, and it lasts really long. It's much better than paper for historical documents. But you can see, even with parchment, something this age, it's beginning to decay down the center. Uh, parchment consists of lots and lots of fibers, all pointing one direction, collagen fibers. When they decay, decay, they turn into gelatin. This is literally turning to jelly. So we'd like to know how, oh, oh I've forgotten I put actually jelly in there. Um, 
We want to know how better to preserve documents like this, to preserve our heritage, the things that are important to us. We want to understand the best conditions or the best ways to conserve documents like this and slow down or stop that decay process as much as we can. And one way of studying the best conditions is to use x-rays to understand that change in structure from collagen fibers to jelly. One final example of this type of thing. Here we have a, uh, a picture of another really important historical document. This time we're talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls. I don't know if you've heard about them. They were uh, scrolls containing re religious writings from about the time of Jesus, found in lots of caves in uh, North Africa somewhere. And despite the fact they were just in caves, they, they, most of them have lasted, but they're often fragmentary. They're scrolls, they're tightly wound. And if we were to try and unwind them, to read what they said on them, they begin to decay and fall apart in our hands. So we're faced with a quandary. How on earth do we know what's written on them without opening them up? What Tim West in Cardiff University is trying to do is very much like we might go for a CAT scan in a hospital and have x-ray pictures taken all around us to build up a 3D picture. He's trying to use x-rays from all around the documents to build up a 3D picture of the scroll without unwinding it. Now, the great thing about this is uh, the ink that people used at that time contained a lot of iron, which absorbs lots of lots of x-rays. So in this 3D picture, where the iron was, where the writing is, you'll suddenly be able to see. And if you can use computers to work out what the writing is on each layer in the scroll, you might be able to read whatever those religious writings were without ever opening the scroll. Again, I don't know if he's succeeded yet, but a really, really uh, attractive approach to try and work out what's going on there. So we're using, in this last example, the most up-to-date, most cutting-edge science and technology to probe some of our most historical documents. And so I think... I don't have time for that, sadly. I have to hear that another day. So we began with a picture of Earth, Earth rising above the cold, dark surface of the moon, radiant with hope, if you like, at Christmas time. Now, hopefully, I've shown you that, that science and engineering using light can be just, just as compelling, that we've, today we've tripped the light fantastic, and that you believe with me that, uh, that the future really is bright. I've been Jonathan Wood. Thank you very much indeed.